Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together thought leaders, scientists, healers, creatives, and seekers. I'm so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible wisdom with you. And I especially love listening to the conversations that are led by my brilliant co-host and friend, Erica Chitty. Erica is the CEO and co-founder of Loom, and she's been a part of the Goop family since the beginning days. We believe that simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. I'll let Erica fill you in on her guest today. My guest today is author and multidisciplinary artist Fariha Roshin. In her book, Who is Wellness For? An Examination of Wellness Culture and Who It Leaves Behind, Faria explores how wellness culture has been commodified and built off the wisdom of Black, Brown, and Indigenous people. She argues that while wellness can be a powerful tool for individual healing, we must all be committed to collective well-being and wellness for all. Today, we talk about why it's important to acknowledge where wellness comes from and how we can be in right relationship to the cultural and spiritual histories of these wellness practices. Fariha explains what wellness means to her and how we can care for ourselves and support one another too. Okay, let's get to my conversation with Fariha Roshin. How are you? How are you doing? I am very in a very contemplative mood this morning. So yeah, it's I've been in a fog and now it's kind of clearing, hopefully. So I'm in a lot of different places. How are you? I resonate with that. I think I too am. I'm actually quite clear this morning, which I'm totally grateful for because I was very unclear for a good seven or eight months. I'm curious about your astrology. What's your astrology? Well, you know, I have such a funny astrology story. I'm a big human design person, but I have a shock channel in my design, which means like my life is propelled forward by shock after shock after shock. 
And it's cool for me as an individual, but for the people around me, it can be very destabilizing how much tectonic change is kind of always happening. So I say that because up until two years ago, I had my birth time wrong. And so I thought I was a Libra Virgo Capricorn. So Libra sun, Virgo rising Capricorn moon. And then I found out that my birth time was incorrect. And I am now a Libra sun, Sag moon and cancer rising. Wow. (laughs) Which is like two completely different people. But so true because I was you know, married at the time before over those years, I had the different birth time and I wasn't out all of these things. Mm. And now I'm in a completely different life. So it really makes, it makes sense. What's your sign or signs? I'm a Capricorn sign, cancer rising, uh, cancer moon. Yeah. So cancer, yeah. Just a lot of feelings, you know, and psychic stuff. Yeah. 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 I feel like that's kind of been a part of getting older what was your Saturn returns like it's the, of the Saturn returns it's the end of it I think my Saturn return was crazy I mean my life really from like 27 to 33 just mm-hmm. completely complete 180 change but I think that's also because I I incited it I conducted it I wanted that mm-hmm. even in the discomfort of it I knew that I wanted some kind of liberation. Mm-hmm. I think I'm okay with, you know, I'm okay with the discomfort of it. Cause I, I really, I think on the other side of what I'm hyper aware of now is just that any real change is so uncomfortable. That's why most people don't do it. Yeah. But I think going back to your body of work, but also just, you know, the most recent book, I think having a, lot of trauma in your family of origin, I think also sets you up for the like the capacity to manage the delta of change, because that's actually what I feel is the most uncomfortable. It's the delta. It's the going from the one state to the other state. And then once you arrive at the other state, it's actually the work of enjoying or being in that state. And I think maybe it's, this is a great way to actually you know, officially kick off the conversation because I really want to hear about you and this book and and the process. But I think everything that we were just touching on really leans into this idea of wellness or well-being. And I really would love to know how you define wellness. Oh, wow. The first thing that comes to mind is I think of community wellness immediately. That was sort of the thing that I was contending with the most while writing this book or, and not even writing it, just sort of thinking about it, like who is wellness for, like just allowing that sort of to take up as much space as it needed in my psyche and as much space as it needed in my life. I was put into the wellness world through my, my sister, because she is very much in the alternate healing worlds. And so in the 90s in Australia, that was my access point. That's how I learned about Reiki. That's how I learned about or I learned about it through my sister. And I think wellness back then was just sort of like the pursuit of the individual experience, like the individual wellness. And as I've gotten older and as I've started thinking about it more, wellness has to be about the community. It has to be about all it's like that's what wellness is it's it's about the all I think that idea of universality is so important 
it makes me think a lot about you growing up in Australia. I grew up for a good chunk of my life in South Africa, which I think is an interesting colliery to mm. Australia because so many white South Africans immigrated to Australia during apartheid. And, you know, people always ask me like, how was your experience living in South Africa? Cause I moved there maybe like three, two to three years after apartheid, you know, quote unquote ended, mm. you know, institutionally, let's say. And a part of me does feel grateful for my time there because it was very cosmopolitan in a way, in terms of, you know, I saw my first kinesiologist when I was in high school. I used homeopathy from middle school, you know, essential oils were just like a baseline intervention that always had been around that I've been interacting with since I was like 13 and I'm 35. Mm -hmm. However, the intensity of the systemic racism of living there Mm -hmm. is something I'm still processing because it was so violent in a way that's kind of hard to articulate. I've never spent any time in Australia. And so I'm really curious about what it was like to grow up there and to, you know, begin to be exposed to some of these practices. You know, what was the lens of how those practices were introduced to you? Yeah, growing up there and finding solace in alternative medicine as it was back then, alternative health was through my sister. And I think the reason why she was so invested in her own health and well-being had a lot to do with the fact that we just grew up in a very abusive household and we grew up around a lot of extreme trauma. And that's really what I think about when I think about Australia, it's not so much the the world around me, but really this like very, very difficult home life that was extremely cruel. And my sister doesn't have the language that I have even now to sort of describe the traumatic events of our life. But I think finding essential oils you know like she started working with doTERRA like 15 years ago you know and like you know like using essential oils and like understanding like what that what that is or like homeopathy like my grandmother was using homeopathy so we were like very aware of what that was and like I also had a kinesiologist that was like my first healer and you know the reason I went to him was because I didn't really have even a sort of like template to begin to understand why I had the life that I did. And I think finding these healing worlds was a gateway to understanding and having language to be, to, to be a little more cognizant or to just even find words to my experience that felt so like divorced and ugly comparatively to everyone else I knew. Like I didn't know anyone else that had a crazy mom like that just wasn't a thing that people talked about and I could see how it was impacting not only my physical health but it was impacting my mental health and I'm I'm so grateful that instead of you know turning to drugs or something harder I found a way to actually be like no I want to confront this and I actually want to look at this and I actually want to know what this is even if I don't know 
what it is. Does that make sense? It's like, I just wanted to begin to understand and healing and, and, and this world that we're both in and in these modalities, you know, that I experienced as a young person, were really like that, that search for something more and a search for, for, for a language for what I was dealing with. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. When it comes to putting together your home, a great rug can make all the difference. A rug is really what pulls a room together and creates harmony. Nordic Knots offers a curated collection of rugs and timeless high quality essentials. They collaborate with leading designers and are the insider rug brand gracing some of the world's most beautiful homes. They have a wide ranging collection, but we'll just talk about a few favorites today. The luxurious Grand Collection is known for its simple design, stunning colors, and high quality wool. But if you're feeling a bit more bold, their designer collaborations are made with world-renowned designers and interior architects. Their Goodweave certified rugs are handmade and woven in all natural materials, like their super soft and beautiful New Zealand wool. At Nordic Knots, they make the process of rug shopping easy and enjoyable. And they always offer fast and free shipping from the U.S. To explore their rug collections, head to nordicknots.com. Use promo code INNERCIRCLE to get free rug samples. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. I want to seize on something you just said about your sister starting to work with doTERRA 15 years ago and thread it into a question that I have which I think really speaks to one of the foundational components of your book. What is the wellness industrial complex? The wellness industrial complex is the profiting and the extraction of indigenous cultures for the the gross profit of mainly rich white folks that are taking information that isn't entirely theirs and patenting it and acquiring it and then putting a stamp on it in order to make a ton of money. That is the, 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 the engine that fuels the wellness industrial complex. And I think, you know, just to, to deepen that, why is it important to acknowledge the cultural and spiritual genesis of a lot of these practices? You know, for someone who says, okay, I get that, but everything's commodified. We live in a capitalist society. What good is it to, to understand the foreground? of where these things come from. I think, especially given that we're facing, you know, extremely difficult ecological times, I think about it within the framework of ecology first, and then I sort of bring it back. So ecologically, we're living in this very, very terrifying time. You know, I think we're facing ecocide. And so what that means is the capitalist model is no longer working. I think we've all kind of accepted, oh, well, we all live and profit or, you know, some of us, we, the ones that are privileged enough can actually access and, and exist, you know, within the confines of capitalism. But nobody ever really thinks about the extraction and the labor and who's behind that. Who are the people that are packaging the Amazon boxes, for example? And I think that that then also is there's this like, huge elephant in the room when it comes to wellness in particular, because, you know, if we're talking about India, and I say this in the book, you know, 350 million Indians live below the poverty line. 
And then you think about how much is being extracted to this day from India. That is something that we should be considering. You know, we should be considering global poverty. Why is it that billionaires exist when supposedly we can solve poverty? Like that, that sort of, you know, dissonance between like, why is it that some people get to live a certain way and extract everything and then others don't get any of that? You know, like Indian farmers were pro protesting until last year because of really harsh laws that were being brought in by the BJP, by the, by the, by the Indian government. And they are the, the, the folks that are, you know, picking the ashwagandha. They are the, the ones that are doing the labor. They, that's where we are getting these resources from. And so for me, it's a consideration and care that needs to shift in the way that we interact with one another. We have to begin to, in order to, I think, survive as a species, if that's what we want, to think, how are we actually in cohabitation with each other? How are we not just surviving, but existing equally and fairly and, and considerately with not only people, but the earth. And I think that that's gonna take an extreme amount of work to look at ourselves um, with a lot more depth and criticality. And that's why this conversation is really important because it's very clear that we're not well. It's very clear that our society is not well. Anybody in 2022 knows that, you know, everything that's already happened this year, let alone what's happened in the last three years, is a sign that we are not healing and we are not healthy. And so what does it mean if you and I are individually well, when societally we still are having to go out into the world, you know, and, and interact with folks that aren't well? Like, why is that? a thing that we accept, I guess. And to me, that's always been the, the worrying thing about humanity, like this idea that, you know, we are just the way that we are and we just accept certain things. We don't, we shouldn't accept certain things. We shouldn't accept racism. We shouldn't accept capitalism. And it isn't the only way. It just, I think, is a, is a lack of imagination, which is why a lot of the end of the book is sort of more playful and it's trying to bring in sort of the magic. I want to dissolve that fear in folks who are afraid potentially to, to change their lives. You know, you said something earlier, change and not folks not wanting to change. And I, although I believe that that's true, I think that maybe a lot more people would change if they had, if, if they had more, um, understanding why it's not only pivotal and important for their own evolution or their own humanity, but like that it's a lot more possible to change. It just means, you know, it just means that you have to commit to it. And that in itself isn't a bad thing. I think that that can be a truly delicious and fun thing if you want it to be. There's so much that you just said that I want to dig into, but specifically, can you talk a little bit more about ecocide I think most people might not be familiar with that term. So ecocide is essentially is a disruption of the planet. If you talk to environmental experts, if you talk to anyone who is in the world of environmental activism, the natural world, Mother Earth, the planet is in a very 
bad place to say the least. I use the word apocalypse a lot because I think we are facing an apocalypse. We are facing a mass death. I mean, currently there's a pandemic. We are already in the stages of that death, but it is extremely concerning to me to, to look at the figures and to understand that, you know, potentially in, in 20 years, we might not even be able to breathe alone. We might have to actually breathe through something. And I think this comes back to sort of extraction. Everything that we do has an impact. And I think with globalization and sort of this like industrialization of the world, we have existed thinking that it doesn't matter, you know, oh, I buy this and I buy that. It's okay. You know, like, I think that the idea of capitalism is like, it's okay to want more things. It's okay. Like, of course you should want more things. You should look after yourself. The idea of self-care, which is conflated often with wellness, you know, like we deserve to care for ourselves. But then again, who pays the cost? And I think that's something I just kept coming back to who pays the cost. And there's so much evidence and it's very, very aware, you know, if you, if, if you're in the natural world that, that the earth is paying a very, very large cost for our consumption. So ecocide is that, ecocide is facing that. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. How do you think we can course correct the commodification of whiteness, yoga, and Ayurveda? You know, it's interesting. You you mentioned a few moments ago about Indian farmers protesting against the Indian government, that these are the folks that are picking the ashwagandha. And I think that's, again, not even something someone's necessarily thinking about when they drink their uh, adaptogenic, warm, tonic, wherever they are. And I really want to hear what that course correction could look like. Yeah. I mean, firstly, it's always important for us to consider the humanity of people by and large. And I think one very easy solution, and I say this in the book too, is for, for especially white, you know, yoga studio owners to start to consider what does it mean to invest back into Indian farmers, you know, folks that are working on the ground, having like that community alliance, having a conversation, having connection and actually considering, oh, the global South isn't 
just something that we can extract from and take from and make money from that we can actually like there is a shared connection and 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 in consideration here it's just it is like so absurd to me that people don't think about that that like someone could go to yoga uh, sorry somebody could go to india and do a three-month yoga training and then you know immediately think about how much profit they could make if they they came back and like open a studio like it it is just like it's strange to me to say the least and so you know one beautiful way and i think that this is like uh, when i think about the beauty of globalization and and what we could do with all of this access that we now have is to go back to these communities and actually give that money back and not just want it for yourself not just want that money for yourself to not just you know for it to fill your own pocket so you can buy this or you can buy a house whatever like it's thinking about everyone's security it's thinking about the planet's security it's about thinking about you know this idea of sacred reciprocity the idea of like i i give you know like i give accordingly i i take accordingly i am not just you know grotesquely taking everything for the sake of it, which I think capitalism just does encourage you to do. It, it, it sort of divorces you from reality. And, and I think that human connection or the connection with the world, it, it makes you think that individually you are allowed to have whatever you want. And I don't think that's the case. And I think that societally, we really have to contend with, why do we need so many things? Why are we trying to sell so many things? Why are so many things available all the time? We know that half of these things don't even work. Like where, to, and also like even thinking about landfills, like, you know, if, if, if you're not a yoga, a white yoga owned, uh, a yoga studio owner, but you want to do something and, and you have a business or whatever, you know, start thinking about ecologically, how can you help people? And even in America, you know, there's so many land back movements you know, considering like, you know, coming back to back to this land and being like, okay, we're all settlers here. What does that mean in relationship with the land? To be in, in right relationship with the land means contending with that, but it also means paying homage. And I think that's just really it, paying homage and thinking about sacred reciprocity, because, you know, I just feel like it's so clear in society that this like desire for all is leading us to just feel so disconnected and detached from one another. And going from that macro framework down to a micro framework in our own kind of day-to-day life, how can we be in right relationship with wellness? How can we activate this idea of sacred reciprocity in in, in our own personal experiences? I think for me, something that's been really humbling is to consume less, to actually think about consuming less. Like, you know, when you're online shopping and you're like this, 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 like, I, well, do I need all of that? Probably not. Am I going to sell all of those things again in five years? Probably, you know, like really, I think like bringing back this idea of, just being content with yourself in a, in a way that doesn't have to do with objects or anything to do with like how much you're you know buying or spending, 
I think worth and self-worth and my own self-worth has been tied to capital for so long, you know, like as an artist, making money obviously was has been a very important thing and yet at the same time i think i've i've really like i lost myself and i lost my way when i when i thought i could just like buy things to make me happy and then when i started to really think about how much i consume and really start to think about do i want to support amazon for example do i want to give my money to these corporations. No. So what does that mean? I mean, I live in Los Angeles. It's a privilege to live here because, you know, there's so much available here. And so like thinking a lot more about your community, the locality of where you live, how can you support the people around you? How can you support, you know, black owned businesses, indigenous owned businesses? How can you get back to land back movements? You know, like Segura Taylor Land Trust is someone I, I really love. They're an indigenous woman-led organization that's giving land back and really helping to rematriate the land. And like, what does that mean? You know, like as settlers, okay, you know, we live here. Maybe many of us can't really help that. So how can we actually then consider our individual impact? I think it's always about your community and also like, how are you a person to people? Like, are you kind? Are you caring? Are you, you know, like, are you, if someone's mean to you, are you mean back? Like, you know, just sort of like really thinking about how do you engage with the people around you? Is there a humanity there? It's really humbling, those questions. And it feels so simple, but it's so big. It's so big to just change, like, just this choice. Like I was in a coffee shop yesterday and the the woman at the in the cafe was just really crude to me in a in a weird way. And I and I felt really defensive and sad. And then I had to just accept it and I sublimated my feelings and I was like, I'm just gonna be kind. It's I don't have to like take this personally. I don't have to like react. I can just accept. And, and move on. And I think something as simple as that is really impactful to your, your day-to-day life and how you engage with folks. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. CarbonX is an environmental company that aims to empower people to make a positive impact on the planet. They've created a simple platform to help you make up for your carbon emissions by supporting climate-friendly projects. You can earn shareable badges based on how long you've been offsetting, and your subscription will go towards supporting new initiatives and carbon offsetting projects that have been independently verified to have removed CO2 from the atmosphere. You can choose a project that is meaningful to you, such as planting trees in deforested regions of the Amazon and investing in energy-efficient and renewable resources around the world. For the Goop podcast team, CarbonX wanted to cover our team's carbon footprint. They donated a subscription for us to support an energy-efficient cook stoves program in Uganda. To learn more about CarbonX, head to their website at carbonx.com. That's carbon with a K-X.com or download the CarbonX app. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. How are you taking care of yourself right now? What does wellness look like for you keeping, keeping in mind all that we've touched on the, the spiritual reciprocity, the moving beyond buying to feel well, keeping in mind, you know, your, 
your own trauma history, which you talk about a lot of in the book, how do you opt out of the matrix, let's say, Mm. but at the same time still self-soothe? Because I think when there is so much trauma or dysregulation, it can be very easy to want to give yourself permission for a lot of these things that are just there and are available. And so again, not to say you're living a monistic life. I mean, you live in LA, but I think I'm just curious how, how these parts of self sync up. My life changed a couple of years ago when I started sitting with ayahuasca and that really shifted. It brought me back to the land and it brought me back to the earth in a very immediate way. And that whole process has been such a wild and, 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 and beautiful evolving process, but it's, it's been interesting because, you know, as someone who had a highly traumatized life, you know, I'm a child sexual abuse survivor. I'm an incest survivor. Those are realities of my life. They live in my chronic illness. They live in my body. At the same time, you know, like it took me a couple of years to really, really accept the fact that within my like indulgence or like my, you know, like I need this, my, the idea of what I think self-care was sort of like encouraging like buy every like you deserve all of it that overindulgence was actually not helping me it wasn't aiding me it was just sort of becoming something that I was sinking into and it was becoming a blanket that was really comfortable for me to and it felt safe to stay in that place of just safety and security or like you know supposed safety and security and then through the work of sitting with sacred medicines, but also doing deep trauma therapy, really, I think having a trauma therapist that can work with me and allow me to sort of reconfigure and challenge myself through that process, I began to see that, and really she was the first person to be like, you know, I have IBS and I've had IBS since I was 14 and it's, I have a bad case of IBS and it's very debilitating at times. And I've had you know, throughout the, how, how many years have I had it then? 18 years. It's, it's, you know, I've had terrible bouts that can, that are extremely destabilizing. And I think it was only last year that I had another pretty bad bout while I was writing the book where my trauma therapist asked me, why is it that you only crave the things that are bad for you in terms of what I was eating and what I wanted to eat. My whole life, I just like wanted to eat like a normal kid. I just wanted to eat chips and, you know, like just like junk food and go to McDonald's and like, just like be able to eat like everybody else. And I never have been, I've never been able to eat any of that stuff. I've never been able to eat junk food. My body can't process it. And so with me, I think, the very ableist ideas that we have in the world, I sort of turned on myself and started to believe that there was something extremely wrong with my body as opposed to now what I understand is that my body was showing me, you don't need these things and these things are not going to serve you and they're not good for you. So stay away from them. 
And instead of sort of trusting that inbuilt intuition, I was sort of, you know, trying to rewrite it and be like, no, like I am, I am not normal and therefore I am wrong. And I think the way that I've been self-soothing like recently has actually, it's funny that you use the word monastic because in a lot of ways, I feel like I have become quite monastic. I've, I've paired back extremely and, and, you know, obviously like it's, it's sort of like this never ending journey of understanding what works for you, but it's really, I think like currently I'm on dieta cause I'm going to sit with ayahuasca again with grandmother on Friday. And so it's like, I am in a very sort of contemplative mood, as I was saying earlier. And it's been interesting to sort of sit with myself and the older I get, the more I realize that it's such a truly beautiful and just like miraculous thing to be able to get to know yourself on a, on a deeper level. Like every single layer that I unpeel, I unfold of myself, I'm able to to gather myself in a more honest way. And that has been the way that I've been self-soothing. Like even yesterday, I started getting my Reiki practitionership and just being in community with other folks that are, are sort of on this similar journey, that spiritual, I think camaraderie and spiritual community has become the way that I self-soothe. So like all of these ways that I think I wanted to earlier when I was younger, or even just a couple of years ago, you know, buying things, eating things, traveling, you know, all of those things, it's, you can do those things, but it's, that's not the be all end all of life. And then there's so much beyond that, that I think we don't prioritize and we don't even value because it's not cool or chic or whatever, you know? And so I think for me, self-soothing has sort of shifted from like, you know, like that kind of like maybe more young version of myself, like the young version that just like wanted to, to be normal. It's sort of shifted from that and it's become like a, a, a deep love and inquiry of my own soul and of my own life and my own body. That's become an incredibly encouraging process. I just, I feel so grateful to have had this conversation with you. I think there's such a slowness to how you're approaching things, which I think is the only way to negotiate the intense extremities of the world that we live in right now with the almost, I would say, like the ordinariness as well, you know, because I think that's definitely kind of where this conversation has gone. Just it's, it's taken us to the edge of our existence, but then at the same time, you know, brought it back to what our own individual embodied experience can be like. And I'm, I'm really hopeful that this really meets whomever is listening to this and gives them an opportunity to just, just to sit and take a lot of that in. And I'm really excited that your book is going to be in the world soon. And I, I really encourage folks to pick up a copy and really think about who wellness is for. And I'm so glad that you took the time to talk to me today. Thank you so much, Erica. I'm really grateful for you. 
Thanks for listening to my conversation with Fariha Roshin. Her book, Who is Wellness For? An Examination of Wellness Culture and Who It Leaves Behind is out now. Thanks again for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast.